There's still so much I don't know about my grandma's dementia and whether she really had Alzheimer's or not. During the final years of her life, it was clear that many aspects of dementia and how to treat it were still a mystery to the medical profession. In this series, we've met some of the explorers, scientists who are mapping the causes of dementia. But there's still so much we don't know. You're listening to the final episode of Uncharted Brain, Decoding Dementia, a series from The Conversation, hosted by me, Gemma Ware, and Paul Keevney, Investigations Editor at The Conversation. In this episode, we're looking at an area of research that's venturing into more uncharted territory. What causes Alzheimer's disease? Paul, in this short series, we've heard about both research into dealing with dementia and into its causes. And in this episode, we're specifically going to look at Alzheimer's. I remember what you said back in the first episode that we don't know yet for certain what causes it. But there is a leading theory and it's about a build off of proteins in the brain. That's right. And these proteins are called amyloid and tau. And if it's amyloid, they build up into hard plaques. And if it's tau proteins, they build up into tangles. And these clumps of proteins are the characteristic telltale signs of Alzheimer's, which is why it's the leading theory as to what causes it. But you've also been looking at some research that's a bit more off the beaten track, haven't you? I have. I've been talking to Ruth Izaki, currently a visiting professorial fellow at the Oxford Institute of Population Ageing, and Professor Emeritus of Molecular Neurobiology at the University of Manchester. She spent most of her career investigating the possibility that a common virus could be playing a key role in the development of Alzheimer's. And this line of research is a bit controversial. For decades, many scientists in the field of Alzheimer's research dismissed it entirely, believing it to be very much a fringe theory, not to be taken as seriously as the other, I suppose, what you might call more mainstream areas, such as proteins like amyloid. But Ruth has dedicated her career to investigating whether viruses play a role. She's been forging ahead, despite the naysayers, scraping together research funding wherever she could find it. Ruth was first introduced to the idea of a virus causing Alzheimer's back in 1984, when she was a young researcher and ex-physicist. It was suggested by an American neurologist that there might be possibly a connection between herpes virus, which is cold sore virus, herpes simplex type 1 virus, and Alzheimer's. So to repeat what Ruth said there, the herpes simplex virus is the virus that causes cold sores. In some cases, it can cause genital herpes, but that's usually a different type of virus called HSV2. So for simplicity in this episode... When I talk about the herpes simplex type 1 virus, or HSV1, I'm just going to call it the cold sore virus. So Ruth wondered if the cold sore virus could be involved in causing Alzheimer's. And she had a simple theory as to why. Firstly, it's very, very common. And most of us are infected at age 60 or so. Some 80% of us are infected. In the earlier years, infections started much earlier in infancy when socioeconomic conditions were less good. So the fact that it's common is really a prerequisite because, unfortunately, Alzheimer's disease is very common as well, all too common. The other thing about the cold sore virus is it doesn't go away. 
Once it infects you, it's there with you for life, so it's all more faithful than many spouses or partners. It just stays with you and you can't get it out. You don't get rid of it. The idea is the cold sore virus lies undetected, or barely detected, in the body for most of a person's life. And that makes sense because Alzheimer's disease usually occurs in older age. It can reactivate and become active and damaging. This could happen in old age, and that's in fact what we think is happening. Ruth always wanted to be a scientist, specifically the kind that pushed at the frontiers. Her hero was Marie Curie, a scientist who started working in the late 19th century and overcame adversity to win two Nobel Prizes in physics and chemistry. Ruth would never compare herself to Marie Curie, But over the course of her career, she would take inspiration from her fighting spirit. That kind of defiant self-belief would be needed to see her through some tough times because it wasn't always easy for her to get funding or respect for the work she was doing. Okay, so Paul, Ruth clearly thought that this avenue of research was important and that this theory of a virus being involved is very compelling. But I'm struck by the fact that this is a virus... A lot of people have. I mean, I've had cold sores. This is really common, isn't it? It is. And, you know, we've talked about how this virus can lie dormant in people. Uh, But some people do show symptoms of it. And that's when cold sores flare up, usually as a result of something like stress. But it's very different from it being around your mouth to being in your brain. So I presume it would have to cross into your brain if it's going to actually cause Alzheimer's. Exactly. And it's been found in older people's brains, but it's currently unclear how it gets there. Ruth has a theory about this. She's looked at post-mortem brain samples of younger people and didn't find it there, so it would have to get there somehow later in life. How and when it gets to the brain is really not known, but I suggested that it probably gets there in middle age as the immune system declines because it's the immune system which keeps it latent Not always successfully, as when a challenge comes like stress or infection. So Ruth did find the virus in the post-mortem brains of older people. But interestingly, the virus was in the post-mortem brains of older people in general. Those who had Alzheimer's disease and those who didn't have Alzheimer's disease. This seemed puzzling at the time. But then she thought that this cold sore virus could be working in the same way other microbes do. We realise that in the case of very many infectious diseases, which are caused by a microbial agent, not necessarily transmissible ones, but ones caused by a microbe, some people are unaffected and stay asymptomatic. The virus would reactivate in the brain of some people more often, causing damage in Alzheimer's disease. So that eventually in time the damage would accumulate. But even though it's present in, in the other people who don't get Alzheimer's disease, the damage it causes is either too little or too infrequent or for some other reason doesn't show up. Ruth thinks that the cold sore virus could be one of the causes, but that doesn't mean it's the only cause. She's keen on the microbial theory, and the cold sore virus is one microbe, but the main culprit could be a different microbe. And certainly one possibility that other microbes might cause this damage. The only thing I would say is that HSV1 is the one that's been looked into most often and for which there's the most evidence. That doesn't mean to say the others don't exist or are are not factors. It means that they simply 
haven't been looked at. And it's possible, in any case, that they might work individually or possibly they might work in combination with HSV-1. Paul, I'm always fascinated in how this kind of science is actually done, like the practicalities of it. So how does Ruth go about getting brains to do her research on and conducting experiments on them? Yeah, Ruth does have some interesting stories about that. When she was looking at the post-mortem brains of the people we just talked about, she got those brains from a brain bank. Ruth and her team had to handle these samples with extreme care. They made sure not to even breathe on them. You have what's called the glove box, which is a box which has filtered air going through it, and you have their gloves that go into it, fitted into the box front, and you put your hands in it, and you, you can see, of course, into it with a transparent screen, but the air movement keeps it sterile, and you, you, of course, make sure that everything you put inside is sterile. So... Otherwise, you know, if, if I, which I don't, if I had cold sores and I were breathing all over it, I would be breathing out some virus, which would be no good at all. To look for the virus in these samples, Ruth used PCR technology. And this is the same tech that has been used for a lot of our COVID testing. It allows you to detect certain segments of DNA, like the DNA in the cold sore virus. We weren't looking at extracts of brain. We were looking at the actual brain itself as opposed to material that we'd extracted from brain. And in these tissue sections, we saw, to our very great excitement, that the viral DNA was actually encaged, seemed to be with It was inside amyloid plaques, which suggested that it was being trapped there. And as we talked about before, amyloid plaques are present in most cases of Alzheimer's. So that was a very exciting finding. And there was entrapment in non-Alzheimer brains, but much, much less of the viral DNA was entrapped. So it was very, very intriguing. But it suggested that amyloid might be acting as a sort of, at least to some extent, as an entrapment mechanism. So Ruth thinks amyloid might be forming as a reaction to the cold sore virus being there. The amyloid would then form around the virus. Subsequently, several other major labs have been looking at this in some detail. It looks as if initially it might be entrapment, but later on the amyloid itself almost certainly becomes toxic in, in some form or another. So it's, it changes its sort of attitude, if you like, or its behaviour in a rather intriguing way, which isn't really quite understood at the moment. Ruth seems to be seeing a correlation here then between the cold sore virus and what's happening in the brain. But correlation is not causation. So how exactly could it be causing Alzheimer's? Again, we don't know for sure. But the leading theory is that the virus is causing some kind of inflammation and damage to synapses. These are the contact points between neurons and where one neuron passes information to another. Inflammation is almost certainly involved. And in fact, it's well known it always has been well known that viruses produce inflammation. They don't just do direct viral damage by smashing out chromosomes or whatever. They also produce inflammation. And in a vicious circle, inflammation causes viral reactivation. So um, it's a nasty thing to happen. <laughs> so the idea is the virus causes inflammation. The inflammation damages synapses. And this damage occurs over and over again contributing to Alzheimer's disease.
So it does sound like there's growing evidence around this theory of viruses and specifically the cold sore virus being involved in Alzheimer's in some way in, in its development. But you've also said it's controversial, this line of research. It has been controversial, especially early on in Ruth's career. She was turned down for grants to do this research and was repeatedly rejected by scientific journals. She remembers one reviewer saying her theories seemed like hand-waving. Now, it's not that unusual for grants to be refused and for scientific journals to pass on publishing articles. But this went on for years. And I guess as much as anything, it goes to show what a tough environment science research can be and how resilient you have to be to stick with it, particularly if you choose to plow a different furrow to everyone else. It sounds really tough, but what's been the main criticism of her work by others? As I said earlier, the cause of Alzheimer's you know, is unknown. But one of the leading theories is that amyloid protein causes a buildup of plaques, which then causes brain cells to fail and die. And Ruth's research is controversial partially because she's suggesting amyloids or protein buildup in the brain may not be the direct cause. She thinks that this is why some scientists have dismissed her work. They don't want their work to be, as it were, thrown aside. Although our work does not in any way minimise the importance of amyloid, it's just saying it is not a cause as such. We're contesting what what is a cause and what isn't. Ruth says just because the amyloid is in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease, it doesn't mean that amyloid is the cause of the disease. There's no evidence for its being causal, but it's certainly important in brain because it's one of the this main component, one of the two most characteristic features of the disease. So it's obviously doing something, probably something quite significant. As for being the ultimate cause, no, we think there's no evidence for that. Despite the controversy around her research, Ruth pressed on. She found research money however she could. Once, a conference paid for a business class ticket to the US. Ruth swapped this for an economy class ticket and used the difference in price as money for her lab. Her persistence at taking a more unique approach to research can be a good thing in science. Dana Cairn is a postdoctoral research fellow at Tufts University in the US. And in more recent years, she's also been researching the connection between viruses and Alzheimer's. I do work pretty closely with Ruth and and she's been quite the pioneer and has had so much pushback through her career and has kind of persevered despite all of the sort of negativity that can surround this a bit. I do think there is growing interest in this space. Attracting funding is important in an academic career. Not only does it determine whether you have enough money to run a research project, Universities are often more interested in hiring researchers who have proved they can bring in research money. But grant funding can follow research trends. Dana knows the funding she's got for her research on a viral connection to Alzheimer's is probably a result of changing times. If you had asked even 10 years ago, there would be no funding announcements for anything related to this at all. And now you see some of these emerging more and more. I have to think that at least in part, this may be due to COVID. I mean, people have seen the kind of havoc viruses can wreak on a global scale. COVID also has, you know, in addition to the horrible respiratory outcomes, there's also this growing 
growing cohort of people that develop neurological symptoms, which is unfortunate that that has sort of led to this potential increase in funding. But I, I think this awareness of what these things can do is really growing. Funding bodies are offering money for research on the role of pathogens in Alzheimer's. And in 2020, Dana and a research team at Tufts University published a paper on this connection, building on some of Ruth's research. They used a 3D bioengineered human brain model, which when infected with the cold sore virus, displayed many Alzheimer's-like characteristics. So basically what we found was that if you, if you take these brains and you infect them with a very low level of HSV-1, comparable to maybe what you might experience if you had, say, a flare-up or something, is systemic sort of low level of infection, what you see is over time is you see these neurons begin to form these large sort of plaques, which are made of beta amyloid, which a lot of people know is kind of the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So these these large plaques form in response to the virus. That initial response is what was very striking and, and actually unique to this HSV-1 treatment. Dana is continuing with this line of research. She and other scientists are now looking at what might trigger the cold sore virus to reactivate in the body and cause damage that can lead to Alzheimer's symptoms. So another aspect I'm working on with Ruth is to understand what are some of those triggers that can happen. And one paper we just published regarding the shingles study was we found that if you have latent HSV and you have a follow-up infection, say, for example, in older populations, you get shingles, which happens quite frequently, that can sort of kickstart this downstream HSV induction and subsequent beta amyloid. And so that may be kind of the trigger of sort of an onset of late stage Alzheimer's. So if you can stop the virus before it's able to initiate these beta amyloid plaques and other downstream things, then maybe you can prevent Alzheimer's before it gets to the point where it's no longer really treatable at all. Ruth's been happy to see this field of research grow. I was the only one in the field for about the first 10 or 15 years, and a couple of papers started coming out which were quite different technically, which was good, but which supported the idea. There's been a large number of publications, of which I think they're probably now getting on for 500, and really quite a variety of approaches, which is good, because the more approaches, different approaches there are, the more convincing it really becomes. Ruth's hoping that as the technology evolves, it will be easier to study this connection between a virus and Alzheimer's. Looking for a, a virus of, in, probably in a very small region of the brain is like looking in a needle of a haystack. And at the moment, there's no way of telling one, except after death, whether viruses are there. What would be most valuable, of course, would be to know if it's there, when it's latent and when it reactivates. But we can't at the moment. Throughout Ruth's search for a possible viral role in dementia, her husband, Shaul Izaki, was always her cheerleader. An academic himself, he encouraged her to push on and told her the work was important. Sadly, he died in 2022 after suffering for about a decade from vascular dementia. This is a different dementia from Alzheimer's with many of the same symptoms. Ruth was trying to unlock the secrets of Alzheimer's while at home she saw daily why these answers were so worth pursuing. 
It was incredibly upsetting, and one's anxious all the time as well as to how he would react or what he would do. Or uh, one's stressed really all the time, and I suppose it helped as a sort of incentive. So you kind of understood what people were going through. Yes, I mean, if one could help them, it would be obviously marvellous. There's just so many people who have Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, and of course it's going to get worse as people live longer. This is another reason why I feel so angry that people are not willing to look not just at our work but at other outside views which could hold the key or one of the keys. They should be much more open-minded. So, Paul, if it's proven that the cold sore virus is actually linked to Alzheimer's and could be a cause of it, what can we do about that? Is it actually treatable? Well, that's the hope. And one way could be through antiviral drugs. At Columbia University in the US, the first ever antiviral clinical trial for Alzheimer's is taking place. D.P. Devanand is leading it. He's a professor of psychiatry and neurology at Columbia University Medical Center. There have been a number of basic science studies done over the last 30 to 40 years. Clinical trials, which in a way are the gold standard, patients either get the drug or get a placebo, and the drug has to be shown to be better than placebo. That type of study has not been done, and I'm doing two of them. The trials are looking at people aged between 50 and 95. Now, these people have already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and have the herpes simplex virus, which includes the cold sore virus. The research team gives half of them an antiviral treatment called valacyclovir and the other half a sugar pill. These studies are underway and will last about a year. After the trials, the researchers will check whether the people who had the antiviral drug decreased their symptoms of Alzheimer's compared to the control group. It's worth testing if an antiviral drug in people who have Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment, if it has an advantageous effect. And if it does, that's quite important to know because right now we don't have highly effective treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And so what's the ultimate sort of hope in 2024? Is the hope that the results will show this connection and that they will point towards antiviral treatments? Yes, it would. However, since this is the first trial, I'm sure there will be questions. And if there is a positive result, we'll probably need to do a more elaborate study. For example, we used a single moderately high dose of valacyclovir. Is that the right dose to use? But in a smaller study, we can't test too many different doses. So if it's a positive study, yes, we would try and do a much more elaborate study to prove that this is indeed effective. On the other hand, if it's a negative study, then that would suggest maybe this is not the way to go. DP Devanand says he's also seen interest in this research grow. More funding bodies seem willing to give money for research on the connection between viruses and Alzheimer's. I can tell you that the first few grants I applied for was a while back, a decade ago. And for the first three, four years, they weren't funded. Although, interestingly, if I look back at the reviews, some of the reviewers thought it was great, and some of them said, I don't believe it. But then in the last five to six years, there's been much greater funding for Alzheimer's, a greater recognition of the public health problem. 
So as the funding is increased, the opportunity to do studies beyond the relatively narrow initial focus on reducing amyloid or tau has transpired because there's more funding to expand into these other areas. Do you think that's a kind of, there's a weakness just in terms of science research as a whole, if it's not being open-minded enough to spend more time looking at alternative theories, or is it just the realities of the funding of academic research? You are making a very good point. I think what happens is a particular idea or theory gains momentum, and then everybody follows that. And when you're doing that, you sometimes lose track of the fact that there may be other things you need to consider. And to some extent, that did happen in the field of Alzheimer's. But at least now, I think it's a much broader approach. This is, to me, just science. You've got to keep pursuing lots of different avenues of research, going down different kind of perhaps dead ends, but they might offer new clues and new things you can try and find out to try and get some answers to this horrible disease. I think that's exactly right. I think science needs pioneers like Ruth, scientists who are willing to go down more uncharted routes and look for different answers. Because as we've seen making this podcast, things are changing and developing all the time. So the more theories and the more open-minded science is, the better. And I think if you look back over these these three episodes, as you say, we've been finding this just, it's still really evolving, this kind of research. And we're still really far from understanding what's going on, even trying to find treatments for dementia, for Alzheimer's. But, it, you know, it takes me back to, to the fact that families, when they're given a diagnosis, it can be terrifying. And, you know, it's even more important that we do continue to pursue this kind of work and pursue this kind of research to at least try and give them some answers. That's it for this episode of the Uncharted Brain series. If you've missed any of the three episodes, you can go back and listen on the Antil podcast. We'd like to thank Ruth Azaki, Dana Cairns and DP Devanand for talking to us about their research and to our health editor, Clint Richards. You can read an article that Ruth wrote about her research on the conversation. We'll put a link in the show notes at the end of this episode. Tiffany Cassidy is the producer of Uncharted Brain and our sound designer is Eloise Stevens. Alice Mason does our social media and our designers are Zoe Jazz and Geeta Zimmerman. I'm Gemma Ware, the show's executive producer. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio and on Instagram at theconversation.com. Thanks for listening to this series. If you found it interesting or useful, please tell a friend or family member about it. And do keep tuned to The Conversation for more coverage of research that's charting the brain.